Hope you all are doing well. You have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been going through 1 Corinthians now for about five weeks. This is the sixth week. Um, Thus far, I haven't been too frustrated by having to preach a chapter at a time. I, I would rather drill down and do a few verses at a time, and I haven't been too frustrated, but this week I, I'm a little bit like, oh, um, because as you're looking at it, you'll see there's really kind of two things going on here. We talked about this last week, um, that chapters 5 and 6 are kind of one thing that's going on, kind of an, an A, B, A kind of form, where A, as in chapter 5, there's things about sexual morality, and as he ends chapter 6, there's things about sexual morality, and the B is the churches, inside the churches, there's litigation or lawsuits against one another, and that's kind of the the, the structure of chapters 5 and 6, which is rounding out really the four things that Chloe's people had, you know, as, as things that Paul needs to address with this, with this uh, particular church here in Corinth. We saw that Chloe's people had a list in, in 111 about these things, these factions and uh, incest in the church, litigation in the church, and also sexual morality in the church. And that was, that was the first six chapters. And then after that, Paul has a a list where he's going to answer their questions in, in the rest of the book. But um, as we're getting into chapter 6, so I'm a little frustrated because I, I really would rather do this in two sermons. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is, right? We're, we're looking at a chapter at a time. I think Paul wrote it, you know, 2,000 years ago and laughed and said, make this two sermons, and so I'm going to try. Um, so anyway, that's what we're going to do. Uh, but uh, you'll notice as we're, as we're finishing the middle of chapter 6 and going into the second half of chapter 6, this amazing kind of unseamless transition that I'll make, and, and I'll point it out to you, and we'll laugh. All right, anyway, uh, if you have a Bible, you can stand. What we do is we read the word out loud, and then after that, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you'll, see, you'll say, thanks be to God. And by saying thanks be to God, you're, you're thanking God that he has delivered his word to us. And by thanking him, we're also realizing in the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, that whatever it says, we need to submit our lives to. So chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to <clears throat> law before, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or 
Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the spiritually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated if you'd like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you have delivered it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit through human authors. You didn't have to give us your word, but you did. And all scripture is God-breathed. And so everything that we read and everything that we study is profitable for training us in righteousness and teaching us. Um, We know that your word promises it will do these things. And we pray that this morning it would. We, uh, we ask, God, that you would take our hearts now and mold them, that you would open our hearts and minds to be receptive to what, what you want to show us here regarding litigation and regarding sexual morality, and that, <clears throat> Lord, that you would, uh, if there's things that are difficult, if there's things that are hard to understand, um, that you would sum- cause our hearts to be submitted to this. Holy Spirit, we're in desperate need of you to teach us to convict us, to show us I'm in need of you, to help me even uh, know and understand and, and teach these things in a way that's profitable for the church um, and even for my own life. And so, Lord, would you, would you come now? We're absolutely in need of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the way I'm going to look at, look at these two sections is we're going to look at chapter 6, starting at verse 1, and we're going to go into about verse 8, and that's, that's the first section. And 9 through 11, I'm going to use as our conclusion to tie everything together. And then 12 through 20, that'll be our second section regarding sexual morality. And as I said, um, in the larger picture, I think we understand of what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Um, in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, there's really two main points. Uh, Craig Blomberg points this out, that Paul's trying to address with the Corinthian church. And the two things are that if there is a dispute uh, that requires intervention... The intervention should occur within the Christian community. Uh, that you should not involve what he calls, um, in, verse, in verse 1, the unrighteous. He, he's going to take the word unrighteous and the saints and contrast those two, basically meaning the unrighteous as in the, the law outside, the courts outside of the church, and the saints, that's the church. His preference is, and the Lord's design is, that if there's a dispute that requires intervention, it should be done within the Christian community, not with the courts. The second thing is that he wants to point out, or the second point regarding all of this litigation, which you can see in verses 7 and 8, is it's better to just be wronged. It's better as a Christian, and it more demonstrates Jesus, to just be wronged rather than to demand some kind of recompense, either in a, that's some kind of dispute money or whatever, and, and, and either in a secular setting or in your Christian setting, in, in, your, church, in your church setting. Uh, it's better to just be wronged rather than do that. Now, um, Christian disputes is what we're talking about here. So um, in, in this particular <coughs> time period in Corinth, it was a huge issue in the city of Corinth. And so the church was just mimicking what was going on in the larger community. The people there, uh, the, the Greeks in this particular city, the Corinth, they loved going to court. Litigation was a part of everyday life. Uh, it was really almost becoming a, a sport to them, to where they, they were trying to win all the time, and they were driven by this unselfish, or I'm sorry, this selfish gain to try to take advantage of other people because they could. 
Uh, in a similar way, in America, we live in a very litigious society here um, where you have to literally write hot coffee because someone poured hot coffee on themselves. I didn't know this was hot. I'm suing McDonald's now because hot coffee that I've, since this coffee is supposed to be hot, is on me. And they literally sued McDonald's and now all your cups say hot coffee because some guy sued because he didn't know hot coffee was hot coffee, right? Which is ridiculous. And so we, we live in this litigious society, and you probably heard this one, uh, a, a guy broke into a house. That's a real story. You can Google it later, not now. Uh, there's, a, there's a thief that broke into a house, and as he was in there, like, cut himself on some kind of knife and sued the people of their house that they would pay for his hospital bills uh, because he, he cut himself in their house. I think that one got thrown out. But that's real. Like that's, we live in such a ridiculously litigious society that these kinds of things happen. And these things, lawsuits, uh, go into our court systems. Uh, and even Christians are partaking in this, much like in Corinth, partaking in this nonsense all the time. And so this is a, a word that we need to hear as well. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be clear on what Paul's not saying. What Paul's not saying. This is not Paul saying that there should be a complete ban on the courts. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul is not banning courts completely. He's not saying that if someone breaks the law, that the state should not bring this person to justice. And he's even not saying if a Christian commits a crime against another Christian, you know, the worst kinds of things that we can think of. We we all know what we're talking about. Uh, Those things, of course, those things should go to the law. Those things should go to, uh, there should be involvement of the state in the court. We know uh, Paul has already made an argument, not already, but he's made an argument in another book in Romans 13, 1, that, that the governing authorities are actually from God, and the governing authorities uh, create uh, mechanisms, and every country's different, mechanisms to bring about justice. Ours is a court system. Um, a pretty good one compared to most societies and most governments and most countries over the last, you know, 10,000, 4,000, however long you believe human history has lasted. But in, in Romans 13, 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Um, so Paul, and he says this in First Peter 2 as well, uh, is telling us that we should be subject to the governing authorities. These things, And it says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, those governing authorities, have been instituted by God. And so th- there are governing authorities here, there are court systems here, and they are here for a good reason. And so Paul's not banning completely court systems. All right, He's just saying that in disputes between Christians that aren't where an illegal activity or law-breaking thing has happened, that those things should not be gone into the courts. Uh, that instead, there's a larger thing that's at play, and it shouldn't be happening. As a matter of fact, Paul's not just kind of haphazardly bringing this up because Chloe mentioned it to him, like, hey, Paul, Chloe, you know, da, da. Paul's not happy. Verse 5 says, I say this to your shame. So Paul's, Paul's saying, this is really bad that you're doing this. This is really bad that you're doing this. So uh, let's walk through it, and then I'll show you uh, the overall problem and, and what's Paul's diagnosis. But you can see, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the, go to the unrighteous instead of the saints? Would you go to the, those who aren't Christians instead of keeping it in the church? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In verses 2 and 3, he's going to make a, an argument from greatest to least. And so he's going to say, you humans, in the greatest sense, are going to one day judge the world and judge angels. So since that's the case, surely the, the smaller kind of things, in comparison to that, he calls them um, trivial cases. He's not saying that your cases are trivial. If someone wronged you, he's not saying that's trivial. He's saying in comparison to the greater thing of the fact that you'll judge the world and angels, surely you can settle these earthly matters here. You can say, uh, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're going to judge angels? 
And then if that's the case, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? In other words, you should, how much more so should you be capable of handling and disputing disputes between Christians and the church? You should be able to do this. You should be able to do this. Verse 4, so if you have in such a case, don't lay them before those who have no standing in the church. Don't lay those before non-Christians who don't think like Christians, act like Christians, and don't have any concern to exalt Christ. They don't have standing in the church. I say this to your shame. And now this next little sentence, it's just dripping with irony, right? In chapters 1 through 4, the, the, apparently Paul was addressing the idea that they just thought they were so wise. That we are so wise! We're Corinth. We are awesome. So he, he addresses that. And so he, he, in chapter 6 when he asks this question, it's just dripping with irony. Can it be among all you wise Corinthians, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? I mean, you say you're so wise. What's going on, Corinth? I love it. Uh, but brothers go, against, uh, go to the law against brother and before that unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. We'll talk about that. So... Why not rather just suffer wrong? Why not rather just be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and fraud, even to your own brothers. And so uh, the overall problem, which we've talked about, is um, that's going on is that they're taking each other, Christians, we're taking uh, to Christians to, to court just like non-Christians. They were behaving just like the non-Christians, which is amazing. I mean, amazing in light of chapter 5, because in, the ch- in chapter 5, the church was willing to uh, overlook unrepentant incest in the church, but uh, the trivial minor matters, Christian against Christian, we're going to court on that one, right? So it's just an amazing irony that they can overlook the incest uh, of chapter 5, but, you know, you stepped on my toe, we're going to court, buddy. Um, so as Paul's looking at, at, at verses 1 through 8, as he's looking at it, he has three reasons of kind of diagnosing the problem. There's three main problems, church, by whenever you take people to court, there's, there's three huge issues that are bad. These will not be on the screen. We're going to do one of those non-screen days, and it's good. This is where you just more listen instead of write, and that's good for us all, right? So, um, <laughs> so here's the deal. The first thing is, um, if you remember in, in 2.16, as he's talking about just how wise they are, he rounds out that argument as he's making for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so he's already addressed in chapter 2 that, those who are in Christ, those who have been filled with the Spirit, actually have the mind of Christ. They have, what we would say, uh, the wisdom of Jesus. And so, by not utilizing that in the church and going to the court system, one of the main problems that Paul wants to point out with this is, um, Christians, here's, here's the first problem. You're denying the mind of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, that you actually have in the church. That's not good. You shouldn't deny that. You shouldn't put that aside. Um, Paul's trying to set up a, a very, in the very beginning, a distinction between the unrighteous and the saints, those outside the church and those inside the church. And he's trying to help them see those who are in the church, since they have the mind of Christ, uh, should be able to s- settle these matters. And that's why he even makes the argument from greater to less. You're going to be able to judge the world and angels one day. And you have the mind of Christ. You should be able to settle these things. And by not settling these things within the church, you're just completely not taking advantage of the wisdom that you have in Christ. You're denying that whole uh, part of your life that you've been given to you by God. You have amazing wisdom available to you, and when you take other Christians to church, you deliberately deny the mind of Christ that you have. And that's bad. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. Use this full breadth of wisdom that we have available to us in Christ. So that's the first kind of problem he has with this uh, 
thing that's going on. There's a second one, which is this. Um, you can see it in verses 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. Can it be, and this dripping uh, ironic question, can it be there's no one, among, um, no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brothers go uh, to law against other brothers? And, you, and here it is. And that before unbelievers. You're acting like unbelievers. And here's the problem. When you act like unbelievers and you go to the courts just like them, you're actually destroying the witness that you have in front of them. So the first problem that he has, obviously, is that they're denying the wisdom they have. The second problem that he has is that they're destroying the witness that they have by suing other Christians. In front of unbelievers, this doesn't look good. In front of unbelievers, when a fellow Christian sues a fellow Christian, they're showing that there's nothing distinct about the church at all. And so they're destroying their witness, and Paul has, you know, and Jesus has, a, a major problem with this. In fact, their divisiveness and their disputes by suing with one another is contradicting the words that Jesus actually told us in, in John 13, 35. By this, um, will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another? And based on the way that they're taking each other to court, they couldn't tell that they were disciples of Jesus at all. And so they're denying the mind of Christ that they have. That's the first problem. The second one is that they're destroying the, the witness they have in front, of other, other unbelie- in front of unbelievers. And that's a huge deal, right? Jesus wants Christians to look distinct from the world. When we look just like the world and just like unbelievers, all they're going to look and say is, there's no power in what you believe. You look no different than me. Why do I want what you have? Why would I want that? And so we don't want to destroy the witness that we have. But there's also a third thing, and I think that the third thing is actually a, a, a deeper, much deeper issue in, in this last part in 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another, notice this argument, is already a defeat among you. It's already a defeat. What's this, why is this already a defeat? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather to be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now, I think what's going on here is when he talks about suffering wrong and talks about being defrauded, uh, who do we know who has suffered the ultimate wrong? He, he's even going to unpack it for us there in 9 through 11 when he talks, I said unpack, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to say unpack because everybody says it. Um, he even describes the gospel for us in verses 9 through 11, right? So the bigger, larger issue that, that's going on, and the reason why he says this is a big problem, we've already said the first one is because they're denying the wisdom they have. The second one is because they're destroying the witness that, that in front of unbelievers. But the third one is they're disobeying the will of God in the gospel. They're not putting on display the truth about the good news of the gospel by taking other Christians to court. They're, they're not telling the truth by, by doing this. The gospel says Jesus has suffered for your wrong on the cross. And since he did that, now he's forgiven you of that offense. And so likewise, when you're dealing with other Christians, you can do the same. You should suffer wrong of, done, of things done against you and then forgive their offense. And when you don't do that, when you don't tell the truth about the gospel, when you don't put on display the good news about the gospel, when you interact with other Christians, you're disobeying the will of God in the gospel. That's the deepest issue I think that Paul has for him. And when he says that, he says, when you go with lawsuits, you're already defeated. You're already defeated. You're disobeying the will of the gospel. When you go to court with another believer, it doesn't matter who wins the lawsuit. You win, you lose. You win, you lose. And ultimately, you both lost. You may have a couple extra 20 bucks, but what Paul's saying is, you're, it's already a defeat. You both lost. Why? Because you missed the whole point of the gospel. You missed the whole point of the gospel. Um, 
And so in the gospel being demonstrated to us by Jesus, we choose instead to sacrifice our rights. We strive for reconciliation with each other because we have reconciliation in Christ. He says we should just suffer wrong and suffer be defrauded. The world says that's unwise, that's insane. That's not whatever you should, that's not at all what you should do. But the biggest demonstration of that's the cross of Jesus Christ, where he suffered wrong for our sakes and then chose to forgive us. And so we tell the truth of the gospel when we do that. And this is how the church is to live in light of the gospel. So those are the three main diagnoses of the problem that Paul has uh, with the issue of, of lit- uh, Christians um, suing other Christians. And then the applications have already kind of broad brushed with Craig Blomberg in the, in the beginning. Uh, I want to I close this section uh, bringing out those applications for us in a practical way. So if you're looking at this, there's two major applications as we understand this that we need to think about. First is this. Christians, this is, this is a general statement, okay? This is a general statement. You can make caveats and exceptions likely, all right? And so I'm not saying that there aren't intricacies about when Christians really do sin illegally and break laws against each other. Okay, I know that those are the case. And I've already said Romans 13 has been set up by God and the state needs to get involved. But in a general sense, the application force is this. Christians should settle disputes with other Christians um, in the church and outside of court. In the church and outside of court. And that's because um, we, we put on display the wrong things about how the gospel changes us. We, we, we tell unbelievers that there's no difference between us and them whenever we don't do that. And so we should strive to have, um, we should strive to have all of our disputes settled within the church. Now, again, um, we have to notify the law if something illegal happens, okay? So I'm not saying we cover up illegal activity in the church and just to settle it here. If abuse happens, child abuse happens, or, uh, you know what I'm saying. If any of these kinds of things happen, those issues have to be, of course, um, brought to the law because that's against the law not to. Um, But in a general sense, the first application is whenever there's something going on between Christians, it doesn't just mean within the members of a church, it just means members from our church to members of other churches, right? Christians. We need to settle those things inside the church. Bring your pastors in and figure out how to, how, to, uh, how, to, how to settle it. The second general application is this. Um, and this, this, is, this, this, goes against, <laughs> this goes against the justice seekers, right? If you're a justice seeker, this goes against who you are. Like, that's not right. They need to know what they did and they need to pay for it. They need to know what they did was wrong, um, the, the second application is it's better to suffer wrong than to pursue recompense from a fellow Christian. It's better just to suffer wrong. Now, I agree that this strikes at the heart of all justice seekers as like, ah, that feels wrong. They should know what they did. They need to know why it was wrong, and they need to pay for that. I understand that impulse towards that. Um, but the Bible speaks against that. And the reason why, just to bar some language from some other texts, uh, Romans 8, I think it's 16 or 17 or 15 and... 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we, we have these light, momentary lives that if affliction comes to us or suffering comes to us, um, compared to the all weight of eternity, those things are, are flashes in a pan. They're, they're short. And so 
Romans 12, 19 tells us ultimately that God ultimately rights all wrongs in Christ. And so since that's the case, we can be okay with suffering wrong. We can be okay with just being defrauded because when that happens, we know that God sees what's actually right and all those things are eventually righted. Uh, I mean, I've, I've dealt with this in my own family where Christy's like, they need to know. And I'm like, it's okay. And she's like, but come on. I'm like, I know. And she's like, I know. Oh. You know Christy is a, Christy's more of a justice seeker at her heart than I am. Um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's my, uh, I don't know, sinful side. But, um, but the Bible speaks against that, right? The Bible says that ultimately we can just trust in a good God that ultimately the right's all wrongs. And so what we know here is that it's better just to suffer wrong and be defrauded. Now, that's the first section that Paul addresses in, in regard to this kind of larger section about the things that, that's going on with, with Chloe. Now, if you remember the close of the sermon last week, uh, as we were looking at this, this case of sexual morality in the church, as we closed, we said, in a sermon like this, it's good for us all to examine our hearts. And if there's any kind of unconfessed sin in regard to this entire category of stuff, we should, we should confess our own life, we should think about those things, and we should um, use this time in this service to to ask for forgiveness of those things, trust the gospel in those things, thank the Lord that he forgives us in those things. And as we close the service, um, as if you were one of those people that prayed that, if you're one of the people that responded, if you're one of those people that thought, I do need to do that. Um, as we're going into this next section, verses 12 through 19, this next section just, just speaks directly to you. And I would just say, um, if you're human, this next, section, this next section speaks directly towards you because God has wired us all as sexual beings, right? This is my seamless, unseamless transition from litigation to sexual morality. Um, <laughs> so um, there's, we'll look at the text. I want to read it and then, and just realize all of this text is, is speaking directly to us. And, I, and I'll, I'll uh, describe and, and explain some of the arguments that Paul's making. All things are lawful for me. This is likely a, a Corinthians phrase, right? They say all things are lawful for me. And so he's going to answer back with more of a, a Christ honoring, but not all things are helpful. Okay, you say all things are lawful. I say, but not all things are helpful. All things unlawful for me, not be enslaved by anything. And then the Corinthian phrase is food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And Paul's going to answer with more of a, uh, a Christian way to think about that, which is the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Um, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food and God will destroy both one and the other. But here it is, the body is meant for, not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now that's key. That's key as we're looking at verse 14. I just want to explain why real fast. Um, as you're looking at verse 14, what's important to realize is in this particular time, they had lots of Greek influence. And so the thoughts of the philosopher Plato were, were prevalent in this particular time where they say the body um, is like a, a bird in a bird cage. And so the cage doesn't matter. It's the bird. The bird represents the soul. The cage represents the body. Take the cage, chunk it out. The only thing that matters is the bird soul flying up to heaven. That's platonic thought. That's not true. God doesn't think that way. He doesn't just think about your soul. He, the body and the soul are important. God doesn't just save our soul, but he also saves our body. That's when he tells us here. Um, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's talking about our entire bodies. That's why he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The whole argument here that he's making is your body's important, Corinthians. The Corinthians had this long 400-year history of prostitution, right? It was just it's so ingrained in who they were in their culture that whenever they became a new Christian, you have to teach them, oh, you, you, you can't do that, right? I know that you're a Christian now, and you used to 
hook up with prostitutes, but, but, but Christians don't do that, right? We, we don't do that. Um, and so they kind of had this ongoing thing, and they also had this, this shroud of platonic thought, which is, well, my soul's what matters. What I do with my body, it's gonna, just going to be gone. It's, God saved my soul, my, my sinful activity with my body, no big deal, right? No big deal. And Paul's like, no, no, your body and your soul are all saved, and they all will be in heaven one day, so therefore your body matters now. What you do with your body matters now. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, he's going to try to ask the absolute, uh, illustratively, most striking kind of question that just makes you absolutely cringe with like, oh, no, and then drive it home to help you think that's what you do. And that's when he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? And he's trying to ask, can't you just imagine taking Jesus and hooking, her up with, hooking him up with a prostitute? Just, just think about it. He's trying to, what if Jesus decided to hook up with Mary Magdalene, who once was a former prostitute? This is the kind of striking question he's trying to ask there to where you're just like, no, the prince of all, all princes, the king of all kings, the pure savior that was willing to sacrifice himself on the cross who has to always be holy, always be 100% pure in justice and righteous and hook him up with a prostitute for a one-night fling. And you're just like cringing, saying, oh, no, no, no. That's why you have the, the never exclamation mark, right? Never. That would never, ever be good, ever. And he's trying to help you see that whenever you hook up or, or have any kind of sexual and moral impulse that you give into, it's the same thing. Jesus hooking up with a prostitute, as repulsive as that is, is the same thing as a Christian giving in to kind of any sexual moral, sexual moral activity. There should be the exact same impulse in our hearts which wants us to say, gross, no, get out of here. I don't want that. The two... Um, do not know who is joined with the prostitute becomes one flesh. Therefore, it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So uh, just like in a, in a husband and wife marriage, they become one flesh. In a Jesus and Christian uh, marriage, they become one spirit. And then the only um, exhortation given to us in 12 through 20, there's only one exhortation, it's right here, verse 18. So what you need to do is flee. Flee from sexual morality. Other, Every other sin, a person commits outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He resides in you now. And you aren't your own. You were bought. When you became a Christian, God bought you. So glorify God in your body. So the central theme that he tells us here is to flee. Uh, if you write in your Bible, you want to underline that. You want to highlight verse 18. Flee from sexual morality. Flee doesn't mean, I mean, it means exactly what you think it means. It means turn around and run as fast as you are able away, right? If you are, are slow, then you just run as slow as you can. But you flee. You are a slow fleer, but you still flee as fast as you possibly can. Now, we want to be really clear here, uh, especially in today's society, when we talk about sexual morality, it's the Greek word pernea, what, what this means. So this means um, flee any kind of sexual activity that is outside of marriage between a biologically born man and a biologically born woman. Anything outside of that, you are to flee. Inside of biblical marriage, a biologically born man, a biologically toward woman, you actually do the opposite of flee. Cling, enjoy God's good gift to you. That's, a, that's exactly his design. But anything in that big, broad, pornea umbrella needs to be absolutely flee, uh, fled from. So why? Why flee? 
Uh, I, I referenced this last week, the hole in our holiness. I'm going to read again. He's got a chapter on sexual morality, and he writes this. Here's why, especially in America, here's why. We are amazingly comfortable with it. It's not about the culture out there. It's about those of us here. It's about what we as Christians are doing and what we are seeing and what we might not even know that we're doing and seeing. I'm afraid we, and take that we as, a, as an I. So uh, even though it's first person plural, think about first person singular. I'm afraid I, and everyone internalize this, don't have the eyes to see how much the world has squeezed us into its mold. De Young still writes, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century of any other today's Christian countries um, in the West, to bring them to the West, I believe that these Christians uh, would be absolutely surprised at a couple things. First, our unbelievably affluence. But they would also be absolutely surprised at how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really, really bad, sexual impurity seems normal. Just a way of life and downright entertaining. Just think about this for a second. How shaken or unmoved are you by Super Bowl commercials? Do you laugh at them? Or the ones that are sexual immoral do you find disgusting? We are, we are so much more, uh, as he says, squeezed into its mold than we think. And so the central exhortation here is flee. We must flee this type of sin because it has the means, and I think actually does in a lot of ways for Christians, infiltrate and destroy Christians at such alarming, stealth-like type fashion right now. So don't think that you're the exception, that you're strong. You flee. Right now I'm teaching my kids guitar. Um, and JC has been getting calluses, right? She's super proud of her calluses. And I told him, all right, listen, here's the deal. And this is, this is hard for a perfectionist. So I was like, all right, for the first month, every time you play, it's going to hurt like crazy and sound terrible. For the whole month. You just got to be like, I'm going to give myself over to the next month that every time I play, it's like, instead of like, that's a G, right? It's going to kill your fingers and it's going to sound terrible. And you're going to think this is a terrible deal. Like, Every time I play, it literally sounds awful in my finger. Now, I'm still going to go with the G, and so she's, she's going with it, right? And even this, she'll soak, I think she's been soaking her fingers in water. I tell her to soak your fingers in water and come back and play. Um, and she's been, she's been pushing. It's like yesterday, she's like, got my first callus. Got one. Look at that. There's a callus here. It's starting to look white, and it's actually, I can play with that finger, and it won't even hurt now. And I'm like, that's good. That's good. The whole point, when you play guitar, I was like, you got to get your calluses. Like, you got to get your calluses. After you get your calluses, after that month, you'll play a G, and you're like, wow, that, was, that actually sounds like a G, and, and it doesn't hurt. I can push down hard enough that it doesn't hurt. You need to get the calluses so that it stops hurting. This is what sexual morality, when we give into it, is happening. We're allowing callousness to hurt our hearts so that sexual morality doesn't hurt our hearts anymore. And that's bad. That's really bad. We've allowed calluses to take over our heart that when we give in to sexual morality, it doesn't hurt our hearts anymore. It doesn't hurt. It should hurt every single time. If you ever play guitar, the first time you play, you're just like, ah! It's exactly how our heart should feel 
every single time there's an impulse towards sexual morality. Ah! I want it to ache that I've dishonored Christ. We can't let our hearts get callous that sexual morality doesn't hurt us. It has to hurt us. And there are countless numbers of pastor and church planners and friends and guys that I went to, that we're in ministry with, guys that I went to college with and seminary with that didn't flee immediately when temptation came. And now they, their families and their ministries are paying the price. And that's just pastors, right? That's just pastors that I know of. I can think of several, even in our own city over the last eight years that we've been a church plant that have had to leave ministry because of sexual morality. So how much more then should all Christians really take to heart this exhortation of fleeing sexual morality? This means you don't get to do stuff that people get to do. You don't get to. That's okay. You don't get to watch shows that people watch. You just don't get to. And that's okay. God's not like, man, I love you, but I really do want you to get to see this show. There's so much naked women in there, but you know what? Just watch it anyway. No, and I'm fine with it. I don't want to. I want to flee from that. I don't want that in my life. I don't want a calloused heart towards those things. And so we flee. We flee. Now, Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been so kind to us to tell us why. Because we're why people. Why should I flee? Here's the command. Why? Because I said so. It's not that. He doesn't tell you because I said so, right? He's kind enough to give us the reasons of why. He wants to let us know. They're right in the text. They're right in the text. Look at verse 19. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when you do that, it's like uniting Jesus with a prostitute. When you unite your body of the temple of the Holy Spirit with any kind of sexual morality, it's like uniting Jesus with a prostitute. That's why. As much as that makes you cringe, it should make you cringe in your own life. That's why. The Holy Spirit resides in you, and you don't unite Jesus with a prostitute, and he's in you. There's also a second reason. That's, the only, that's not only the, the first one. There's a second one right there after that. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. God bought your body on the cross to glorify him. So the first reason we don't is because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we... We honor Jesus. We don't hook Jesus up with prostitutes. The second reason is because God bought you at the cross. He bought your heart, he bought your soul, and he bought your body. He bought your mind, he bought everything about you. And now he wants all those things to glorify him, to bring him glory. Everything about you. He wants everything about your body to glorify him. The body is meant to glorify God. So now, if that's the case, we can even step out of just sexual morality and see this means everything about our bodies. The way I think, the what I read, to what I eat, to everything. Everything is supposed to glorify God with my body. And so he's created my body to bring him glory. And so that's why, that's exactly why we don't, uh, or that's exactly why we do flee from any kind of sexual morality. We don't linger We don't allow it there. We turn and we sprint as fast as we can, like when we were 10 and we could run fast. Not now. But metaphorically, I can run fast. just can't physically run fast anymore. Kids can get away from me now. Anyway, um, so uh, I think that as we're concluding here, it's good for us then 
to look over at verses 9 through 11 and get the good conclusion, right? There's a, there's a, a serious conclusion, I think, that Paul, it's a gospel conclusion that he ends with, which is so key for us, that we need to re- close to remind ourselves that this is not God saying, so just do it, right? Just get to it. Work hard now at your sanctification. This is a good gospel reminder. So he's going to say in verse 9, uh, this isn't talking about things that you do. He's going to talk about, the big word is your ontological nature. He's going to talk about your state of being, your, your identity, who you are and who you were. And so in verse 9 he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying if you happen to do some of those things some of the time as a Christian, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying that your ontological nature, the state of who you are, your identity is wrapped into those particular sins. You're not a Christian. That's who you are and you're proud of it and you love it and that's, that's who I am. Then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says this, and I love verse 11. It's literally one of my favorite verses of the Bible. I say it in my head all the time. And such were... Some of you, Corinth. And such were some of you, Remedy. You were those things, but you were those things. The ontological of your identity, who you are, is now changed. You were those things, but you're not anymore. Now, you're Christ's. The were is the verb are, to be. And so, your being has changed. You were that, but now, who you are, the essence of who you are now, has changed. Such were some of you. And what's true now is, you're washed. You're washed. You're justified. I mean, I say this to you all the time, but but feel it, right? Feel it. Knowing what you did this week, those who are in Christ, you're washed completely. God looks at you and he sees Christ and he says, justified, innocent. That's who you were, so don't do that anymore. As it says in chapter 5, we saw this last week in chapter 5, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. You can cleanse out the sin in your life because what's true of you is you're already unleavened. You're already sinless. You'll never reach it. You won't be perfect in this life, but you have, because of the Spirit in you, the absolute ability to kill sin in your life by the power of the Spirit. And so, such were some of you. This is what the gospel has done for us. Jesus has done in the gospel for us. You used to be these things, but not anymore. Why? Because of what God did in Christ. He sent his son to take on your unrighteousness, to be your savior, die on the cross, rose from the grave, and he opened your eyes to this beauty. He washed all your sins away by his grace, and he justified you. He justified you. You were this. You were this. And now you have new life in Christ here as you live to not litigate, not give in to sexual morality or any of the sins. Here and forever. And forever. This is what's true. We need to realize the power of the good news of the gospel that when Jesus declares us these things, The cross of Christ, Jesus himself, transforms 
worldly desires and to an entirely new way of thinking and living. He transforms us. And such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're justified. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful text. Thank you for the truth that the Spirit of God resides in us, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the house, the the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so since that's the case, may we never, ever, ever unite Christ with a prostitute. May we strive for holiness every day. May we, since you have bought our bodies, offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you to glorify you with our lives. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.